So appreciate everyone being here tonight. Hope you're having a good week. Um, next week, the hope is that Phil will be teaching. And that's because, if so, that means uh, Alan Austin, Ken Rivera, and myself were able to head down to Guatemala on Saturday morning. So that's still the plan, but I know that could change as of Saturday morning. Um, but so with the COVID, everything is kind of weird, but we're hoping to go down to see Kimmel in uh, Guatemala, where our plan is to go to the uh, Clinica Izel, which is um, south of where they normally are. So normally we go to Chichi Castanango, which is about two and a half, three northwest of Guatemala City and kind of north of Lake Atalon. So this time we'll be going about two and a half southwest of Guatemala City and we'll be south of Lake Atalon, about an hour from the Pacific Ocean, so or the Pacific coast of Guatemala. And uh, we are working on the <laughs> clinic there. They, the government has requested them to do certain maintenance items to come up to regulations. So we are doing uh, pretty much whatever Kimmel says we will do. And uh, so I'm, he said it would be basically handyman stuff. So I think the drywall, putting up signage, maybe some painting, things like that. Um, hope it's not running oxygen lines or something like that. Otherwise, somebody's in trouble. So, And I'll apologize right off the bat. I forgot my hearing aids. And I was kind of wondering, boy, it's pretty quiet driving in. That's kind of like this. And then I realized, oh, now I know why it's pretty quiet driving in. So things are a little muffled. So if I don't respond to you, I'm not trying to ignore you. Unless it's a very mean question, then I might be ignoring you. Um, but just uh, speak a little louder or somebody kind of help with the translation uh, coming up uh, and help me out that way. Let's see. Think there's any other announcements? Um, let's go ahead. I think everybody's in. We'll open with a word of prayer if we could. Father, we thank you for again this opportunity to gather. We ask your blessings on our study that we might um, be able to understand you better and how you relate to us and how you've related to others in the past. We ask your comfort on Donna and be with uh, the ceremony tomorrow that it will be a celebration of life of another one of your servants who has fought the good fight and, and entered into the reward. And we all uh, look forward to that. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. All right, so our scripture's Jewish. We're, we're basically trying to talk about the culture of scripture and that where, how it was written. And again, we recognize that we are a predominantly Greek thinking, individualistic society, reading an Eastern community-based culture. Uh, when I go down to Guatemala, obviously I will recognize that I'm in a different culture. Things are done differently. And at times we forget that when we are interacting with Scripture, it is a cross-cultural interaction. That there is 
Um, it's another culture that, they, that it was written in. And there are things that go without being said in our culture just because we understand it. Just like there were things that didn't need to be said in their culture because they understood it. Uh, when, I go, when we go to Guatemala, we will be going into a, a collectivist culture. Uh, Phil is going to talk about that next week, the difference between individualist cultures and collectivists. So, um, so next week as you're talking about that, you'll know that um, three of us hopefully are actually working within a different culture than how we experience. It's a different worldview, different priorities. Neither is better or worse. There's not a right or wrong with culture. It's just how we grow up. Um, and for example, you know, things that don't need to be said would be like if, if Monday morning I say, hey, Denver was at Kansas City yesterday. Well, we kind of understand what we're talking about. If it's in the fall, we know it's a football game. Um, we're not saying the city of Denver was somehow in Kansas City. We know it's the Broncos and the Chiefs. Typically, we would ask what? Who won? You know, that's kind of our question that we ask. So someone reading my question without understanding the culture would have a hard time. What, what did he mean? Denver's was at Kansas City yesterday. That, that makes no sense. And sometimes that's what happens when we read Scripture because they're not filling us in all the details because they didn't need those details. That's just like we talked about honor battles. Uh, when we see the honor challenges in Scripture with Jesus, most of the time the writer gives the reaction of those who were around. And why is that? Because his readers would want to know who won. Same question we ask. And that's why I believe with Nicodemus, the writer says, by night... Because at the end, there's no audience reaction to know who won. If, in, if the author had not said by night, his readers would have assumed an honor challenge during the day. With the status of Nicodemus and Jesus, it had to be an honor challenge. But because he says by night, we know, well, we're not going to ask who won because there was not a winner. It was a sincere conversation. It was too... Uh, learned individuals just having a, a sincere conversation because the only time they could have had that was at night. Um, so that's just kind of how what we're trying to do with as we're trying to understand the differences between the cultures. Again, the goals of the class is to allow us just to recognize and be aware of the culture of Scripture. Hopefully now, as we read through the Gospels, we can see these question and answers, and hopefully we see them in a little different light. We kind of understand what's going on, the, the little bit of a battle that's going on. Uh, it's to deepen our roots in Christ, and also to gain an appreciation of how other cultures see Scripture. Again, last couple of weeks ago, Phil talked about the honor-shame culture and the fear-power culture and just how those cultures are going to see God differently than how we do. We are predominantly a guilt-innocence culture. So we are predominantly wanting to see God as a judge, Jesus as um, our mediator to help remove our guilt 
and we can be declared innocent. That's, that line of thinking for most all of us is very comfortable. We, we kind of go, yeah, I, I get that. Whereas in an honor culture, most of the Middle East, uh, Guatemala, again, when we go into Guatemala, there's a strong honor culture there. They're going to see Jesus as a, as a mediator who helps uh, remove their dishonor and take away their shame. And again, if we go into a fear culture, and again, Guatemala has that. It's kind of an honor, shame, and a fear power. Uh, and it's still very prevalent. Um, Jesus is uh, kind of the strong man who is able to overcome the evil spirits and through his power, take away the fear of the spiritual world. And those cultures, Zambia also, um, are very aware of the spiritual world, uh, probably more so than we are. Uh, and so by understanding the different cultures, we can recognize that other cultures will read the scriptures a little differently, have a different view of God, and there's not, a, again, a right or wrong Sometimes it's good to say, okay, what's the class not going to be? What are some not goals of the class, if that's a good way to say it? Not saying that we need to replace what we already know and believe. That is not the goal of the class. We, have, we, we live within our culture, and, and that's how we're going to understand Scripture. It is not to say that we have to only interpret Scripture through an honor or patronage lens. But it is good for us to recognize that there are other ways to see Scripture that are just as valid as ours, because that is the culture that it was, the Scripture was written in. Um, so again, honor, just a, a little bit of a review. All of Scripture, Old and New Testament, is written with this honor umbrella. Both Old and New Testament cultures, they, all of those individuals lived within an honor culture. So the honor, of, uh, honor and saving face was the primary social construct that they lived with. It's how the, the writers of, the New, of Old and New Testament viewed the world. It is basically your place in the community. So again, an honor culture is always a collectivist culture. Why do I say that? Well, because in order to have honor and to know where my honor is, I have to get affirmation from the community. So within our culture, as an individualistic culture, we don't get that affirmation from the community as much. We, we can kind of stand for ourselves. So any honor culture is going to be collectivist where the community affirms your honor or the claim to honor that you're making. And again, remember, they viewed honor as a finite source. Just like we have a finite number of chairs in the auditorium, they view honor as just as finite as that. So if I try to take more honor, if I try to take more chairs, somebody else has got to lose some chairs because we're not making new chairs here. And again, that's why there was so much envy with Jesus, because his piece of the honor pie, he was grabbing all the chairs. And when the music stopped, the leaders didn't have any place to sit. 
And, and ultimately, that was a lot of the driving force of why they wanted to kill him, get their chairs back. Shame is a positive thing in an honor culture. We view shame somewhat negatively. If I shame someone, I am in essence pushing someone away. But in their culture, shame is to try to draw you back. Shame is when I deviate from the, from the norm of the community, and now I'm trying to be brought back into that norm. And shame and guilt are not equal. So we will feel guilty for our actions if we break what we from if we break a law is how we generally feel. We feel guilty, that's an individual emotion. And now I need something to bring out that innocence. Shame is not guilt. Uh, shame is again a, a pulling back into the community. And in their culture, most of the time, if you what you did was in private, uh, there, there was no real loss of honor because there was nobody else to view it. And there was not really a sense of guilt. And we talked about, again, how uh, we may go to someone in an honor culture and say, well, don't you feel guilty for your sins? And they may well say no. We go, well, why don't you? Well, it's just as valid for them to say, well, don't you feel dishonor for some of your actions? And we would go, well, no. So it's, it's that same, same kind of dynamic there. When we are reading through Scripture, kind of briefly we can look and see what some of the words mean. We're not looking at for just the word honor and just the word shame as we look through Scripture. So when we read through Scripture and we see words like glory, blamelessness, repute, fame, those are honor terms. Uh, disgrace, dishonor would be similar to shame. And again, dishonor is the opposite of honor, not shame. But scorn and despise, revile. Uh, and, and when you see those words, verses are going to be coming to mind right now. Uh, you're going to be thinking of verses that use these words, and that's, so that's putting it in the honor context. Uh, the honor challenges, when we see test or entrap, those let us know. Those are key words that say this is an honor challenge. And then the perceptions of being challenged are shame, vengeance, wrath, things like that. And also when you see fool or foolishness, that is putting it in, uh, in the honor context as well. So what we know is that God is always seen with honor. And when we read from Revelation, what do we see? We see whenever the living beings give what? Glory, honor, and thanks. Again, Revelation 4 and 9. Those are honor terms. Probably for us, we don't think of glory as an honor term. We think of glory as, as majesty. You know, it's just something radiating or, uh, in that sense. But glory really means worth. It's, it's, a, it's a word that's meaning something of value, something of worth, which is what honor is. It's your value in the community. So seeing this, again, when we're looking in heaven, heaven is 
well, it looks like heaven may be an honor culture. So we might as well start learning the terms and understanding this is, this is the language of heaven. So these are honor terms that God is worthy of honor and, and you, you are worthy, again, another term of honor, uh, to have glory, honor, and power. And it, it is interesting that uh, the term power is used there. Again, a fear power culture is going to key in on that word. That God has the power, not the evil spirits. So now we look at the cross. So for the Romans, uh, again, in honor culture, the ultimate shame was to uh, be beaten, was to be flogged, uh, and was to be nude publicly. And what was the cross? The cross was the ultimate shaming utensil, for lack of a better term, that the Romans had. The Romans really didn't even like to use the term the cross because of the shame associated with it. It was really only for slaves. It was, uh, again, it's just hard for us to really understand the degradation and the, just the shame involved with someone being crucified. They have been beaten, they are bloody, they have been, had their clothes taken from them and, and basically auctioned off or gambled off. They are subject to being spit upon, to being reviled, to being scorned. Uh, it was the ultimate shame. So now we have this problem because Jesus suffered his death on a cross. And how are the disciples going to overcome this obstacle that is huge within that culture? How can I follow someone who has been shamed to that magnitude? Look at what it says about Jesus in Hebrews. What, what do we read? That looking only at Jesus, the originator and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, what despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus endured the shame and the Hebrew writer now is, is in essence turning this back and saying, yes, he did go through the shame of the cross, but where is he now? The right hand of God. What is that? That is the place of honor. To be at someone's right hand was the most honorable place you could be seated. And we have seen from Revelation, God is worthy of all honor, of all glory, of all power. So you take the most honorable being, and now Jesus is at his right hand. The Hebrew writer has now said, yes, he endured shame, but no. He is now at a place of extreme honor. Again in Hebrews, he's the radiance of his glory, 
exact representation of this uh, nature. And again, when he had made purification of sins, the cross, he did what? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We probably look at that as, um, you know, Jesus is now joining the Father, and we probably don't see this as an honor statement unless it's called to our attention. That this is saying Jesus is worthy of the same honor that has been given to God. Hebrews 8.1 Again, now the main point of what had been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. So over and over the Hebrew writer is stressing the honor that Jesus now has. Carl? He's in this place. He's up there. He's great. He's not part of this world. Where we start reading like the Great Commission. Going to all world, and lo, I am with you to the end of the world. Jesus' involvement in the church, everything shows mm-hmm. that that that's not would not be a statement of some place, but the honor of being God with God. Correct. So again, the, the cross is a, is this paradox of shame and honor. Jesus endured the cross, suffered that shame, but now has has this honor. Um, what does it say in, in 1 Corinthians? The wisdom, none of which the rulers of this age understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Crucified is the shame term. Lord of glory is the honor term. He's saying the, we would not have shamed Jesus if we had understood his honor. So we see this shame and honor being presented within the same verse. And again, in Philippians, we're familiar with it to where he humbled himself, being obedient to the point of death. And here, uh, Paul stresses this shame, death upon a cross. Did he need, it's like, you know, he's already made the point that he was obedient to the point of death. That made the point. But he adds death on a cross and for us we look at that again and we just say okay that was the manner of execution I get that for Paul and his readers Paul is reminding them of the basically the degree of shame that Jesus suffered in his obedience and again we see the honor Uh, being reflected back. So Jesus suffered the shame of death on a cross, but he was bestowed the name which is above every name. Again, that is an honor term. Your name, what family you belong to, depended or, or dictated your honor. One family had more honor than another, and you were part of that family, you had that what? That was the ascribed honor based on your family relation. He's saying what? Jesus' name is now above every name. That's his honor. And that every knee will bow, those are heaven and earth. So what we see from, the God, from Paul's writings especially, 
is this juxtaposition of shame on the cross, but then the honor that is associated with Jesus. So now the apostles. The apostles were flogged. Again, we're in Acts 5.40. They ordered them not to speak. As they left the council, they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. Uh, Some versions will translate dishonor as shame. Uh, The word really is dishonor. And I think that it's probably translators thinking that shame is the opposite of honor. It's not. Dishonor is the opposite of honor. So this term really is dishonor. And and what what do we see? We see the apostles now following in the example that Jesus gave. So for them, to be flogged was shameful and dishonoring. But they they considered themselves, again, an honor term, worthy, honorable, and to suffer for the dishonor. First Corinthians 6.20 For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. When we read this, we probably think more in a transactional terms because we see bought with a price. What do we do when we go to Walmart? We buy something for a price. It's a transaction. So it's, it's really um, somewhat kind of distance. And we kind of think, okay, what was, the, what was the price Jesus paid? Well, he paid with his blood. So that was the, the price of his death. But if we begin to think more in, um, well, before I go there, yeah, if we begin to think in an honor culture, the term here is, for you were bought with honor. And that's the term that's actually used. But if we, if we read that in English, that's hard for us to understand. How could we be bought with honor? But you see, Jesus did remove his honor and take on shame for us. So I don't know if Paul is saying you were Jesus that we were bought with a price meaning a sum of money. Now the term can be used that way when we talk of Ananias and Sapphira. The same term is used when in Luke says uh, you held back a sum of money. It's the same term that's used, but most frequently the translation for this word, it's, it's time, is that of honor. So is, is um, Paul saying here, you know, Jesus gave up his honor for you. So what are you to do? You are to what? Glorify. Again, that is an honor term. You are to give worth show show worth 
for what Jesus has done. Don? Using this thinking, what was Peter's message at Pentecost? You keep talking. Um, I believe that, yes, they would have understood that in an, uh, as an honor statement from an honor perspective. So when he is saying, you have killed the Son of God, in essence, he has, has told them that he is the Son of David. So there's honor right there. And now what are they feeling? They are feeling dishonor. And they need to have that shame associated with it removed to come back into a place of honor. So repent and be baptized. And now you will have your honor restored. Now, can we understand it as we have been guilty and we need to repent and be baptized so that we are now innocent? Absolutely. That message works for us. Uh, can it be that you have killed the Lord of, of power and you now need to repent and be baptized so that you can be under his protection for those who are in the fear culture? Absolutely. We, that, God's message is for every culture. And what but let's understand those who heard Peter's sermon were hearing it from an honor perspective. Uh, from my standpoint, there is just no doubt on that. That's how they viewed the world. Uh, so when we look at how they're reacting, it will be from an honor perspective. So honor, they experience dishonor and shame, and they're needing to be brought back into the community. Uh, so that's, that's how they're seeing it. That's how they're reacting. So again, we are bought with honor, but are we bought with the honor of Christ? He shed his honor so we could have honor, and then we honor God. So again, it's that, uh, it's that circle that we've kind of talked about. So now we're going to move to patronage. So to recap, honor is the worldview of Old and New Testament. All of the writers would have been writing, everyone we see in the Old Testament, New Testament, would have had that honor-shame worldview. When we talk of patronage, we are talking New Testament and predominantly Greece and Rome. It was not a Jewish social economic structure. But since the Jews were living in a Greek and Roman world, they were very familiar with how it worked. Just like we are very familiar with how a credit card works. Even though most of us did not initially grow up in that environment, 
most of us grew up paying cash for things. So, correct. I mean, Don, did you have a credit card when you got married? No. So, we have gone, in our culture, just our lifetime, we've changed how we interact with the world from a cash culture to a credit culture. So we understand what the Jews are going through. They had their culture, but they are living within a patronage culture, and they are fluent in how that works. Uh, and we're not, because we don't live in that environment. So some of the terms, a patron. A patron was an individual who had access to resources, to wealth. Generally the top one, maybe three, five percent, uh, were in that category, the very wealthy. Uh, they either got their wealth uh, generally from either political position or that's their family that they were born into. A benefactor is still a patron, but that term is more used for a public good. We saw that last week when the centurion built the synagogue for the Jews. That was a benefaction. That was a, he was acting as a benefactor. And they had been an obligation for him because of what he did for them. The client, generally most of the people, were individuals who had needs that could not be met in the marketplace. Again, they still had a marketplace where they would go and barter for goods. But if you could not meet your needs in that marketplace, then you needed a patron to help you. Uh, if I'm needing to add on to my bakery, then the patron would have the supplies for that. And if I did not uh, have access to that patron, then I needed a broker. So a broker is the one who arranged those interchanges of commerce. Generally, the broker knew both parties, and the broker was very trustworthy. And a broker could be a patron or a client. And again, if I am a patron, I could also be a client. So the ultimate patron in the Roman world was the emperor. He provided goods, provided things for all everybody underneath. And if I'm just underneath the emperor, I'm his client, but I have people underneath me, I'm their patron. And if I have somebody who's a go-between, that then is the broker. The term that is used when we have people of equal means exchanging favors was that of a friend. Very different from how we define a friend. We define a friend as somebody I like to kind of hang around with, go eat lunch with. But for them, a patron would call their clients friends or someone equal as friends. And we saw this with Pilate and Herod. They shared favors. The favor was Jesus was kind of transferred back and forth between them. That was showing honor to the other person. Therefore, they, when they exchanged those favors, they became quote, friends. And both of them had the same goal in mind, that was keeping the peace in Jerusalem. Uh, so gifts always have strings. There was no free lunch. Okay? So if I give a gift to you, 
the expectation is that when my turn comes, you're giving a gift back to me. It was always a reciprocal relationship. That was understood that when a gift is given, there's another gift coming back. So for us, really for us to kind of get our heads around it normally, if we think about it simply as a reciprocal relationship, and the term we use most of the time is, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. That's kind of how we, we describe it. Uh, the patron, and some of the rules for the patron were to give gifts out of the goodness of their heart. They were not expecting a return. They were encouraged to forget the gift, keep no record of it. And they were supposed to be faithful to meet the needs of the client. That's why I would choose a patron, because I would know he could meet my needs in the future. The client, though, is expected to return. And normally with gratitude, the client cannot repay the gift. The client does not have the funds to repay the gift. The client did not earn the gift. He did not merit the gift. But he was expected to return normally with intangibles. Honor, gratitude, votes, bringing in more clients, things like that. It was to never forget the client gift and always to remain loyal to the client. So we have benefactions. So within the patronage model then, God is presented as the ultimate patron. And that's how Paul is going to present God and how um, God is being presented to the Greek and Romans who hear as he is the ultimate patron, he is the ultimate benefactor. What does Paul say? Again, Paul here is in Lystra after healing a man. Uh, they, they come to Paul and they kind of want to make Paul and Barnabas gods. Paul says, no, wait a minute. Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things, these idols, to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Those are benefactions. Those are goods that God has given. In the past, he let all nations go his way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and your crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food, fills your hearts with joy. So Paul here is explaining to them, God is the one who's sending the rain. God is the one who is providing. God is the one who has benefited you. So the term shown kindness is really he's shown a favor, shown a benefit. So as the centurion built the synagogue for the Jews, Paul is saying, hey, God's done everything. He has provided everything. What's Paul in essence saying? Well, you're his client, and now you're obligated to God because he is your benefactor. 
So Paul is in essence kind of putting an obligation on them, reminding them of that obligation. Again in Acts, Paul is at Athens. He goes, you know, you guys are pretty religious. I see uh, idol here to the unknown God. Let me tell you about him. Here's what is about him. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. Doesn't live in temples. He's not served by human hands as if he needed. Rather, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Again, God is the benefactor. You have benefited from God, so therefore you are in his debt. And you are now obligated to God. In 1 Corinthians 8, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came, and for whom, all, for whom we live, there is but one Lord in Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Again, we read that in essence kind of as a creation narrative. Oh, God was there, Jesus was there with creation. It's a patronage statement. Paul is making this with the patronage worldview. His, that culture is in mind. And he's saying not only is God a benefactor, but Jesus is a benefactor. All things come through him. Therefore, all people are indebted to him. Romans, for who did know the mind of the Lord? Or who did become his counselor? Or who did first give to him? And it should be given back to him again because of him and through him and to him are all things. To him is the glory. He's basically saying, did anyone ever obligate God? No. Because God is the ultimate patron. We are obligated to him. Nobody outgave God. Nobody gave to God first. God has given to all. And to him is the glory. Again, that is the honor term. To him is the worth. What do clients need to show their patron? Gratitude, honor, loyalty. And, and Paul here is, is making the case that God and Jesus are the ultimate benefactors. What was our response to God in his benefaction? When he has given us all of these benefits, what is our response? Well, for they, even though they knew God, what? They did not honor him or give thanks. What were the clients supposed to do? Gratitude, honor, loyalty. What did we not do? Give gratitude, give honor, give loyalty. Romans starts off with honor language. We know this is an honor book. And this being to the Romans, we know it is based on patronage because Rome had... Rome was steeped in patronage. That was their economic system. That was their culture. So claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged what? The glory or the worth or the honor of the incorruptible God for birds. So again, Paul is using this patronage language to stress that we did not honor him. We did not give our... Uh, our patron, the honor he was due. God is the ultimate patron. Why? Because he even shows favor to his enemies. Within the patronage system, you, 
the patrons were supposed to give to everybody, but they typically gave to those who showed gratitude, honor, and loyalty. They were encouraged to give to those who didn't. And if they did, it was generally out of the surplus. But God goes what? For he himself is kind to the ungrateful and evil people. So God is, again, is going beyond that of a human patron. And also, God took the initiative. Again, Romans 5, uh, 6 through 8. In verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. In the patronage system, the client came to the patron. The client picked the patron out because of the goods and resources he had. And then the gift was made. But God says, no, I'm making the gift first. So God has gone beyond what a human patron would do. And he did it through a broker. Now we're comfortable with this because uh, we see Jesus as a mediator. We view it more in a legal sense than in a patronage sense. But Jesus is, uh, is named as the broker in Acts 10. You know Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit, with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who are oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Doing good is the term that was used for benefactors. So when, when the centurion built the synagogue, the Greeks would have said he was doing good. That's the word they used there. So in this, Luke is using the same term that patron-client relationship would have been used of any patron who did a public benefit. And again, in 1 Timothy, he is called our mediator. Uh, they would have seen that in the um, patronage lens, whereas, again, we see it through a legal lens. So now we have this circle. So again, patronage is reciprocity. That means a gift. It, it's a circle or a dance. We have the patron... And we have the client. The patron gives favor, and it's the gifting process. The client shows gratitude. And at this point, we're going, yeah, I'm okay with that. I see that. That's pretty interesting. But how does it really apply? Well, what did the Greeks call this favor? They called it charis. What did the Greeks call the gratitude? They called it charis. That's the Greek word. How do we translate charis? We translate charis as grace. And grace. And when I, when I first saw this about a year or so ago, I got a little upset. Because to me, in all the years that I've been at church, grace was a Bible word. Grace was a religious term. Grace was a God word. Grace is what God, you know, that's that big word that God, that Paul invented to show the majesty of God's gift and, and how he has come down to redeem us 
and justify us. I'm thinking there's, there's no, no, there's no way, Paul. No way, Paul. That's because I'm going, no, you know, grace is something man couldn't have come up with. And now I'm going, wait, you mean the Greeks were already doing that? The Greeks already had a term for that? Rome was already using that word? And I struggled through that because I wanted grace to be this religious term. And as I kept looking at it, I'm going, it, it became harder and harder to deny that Paul is using the patronage system in existence within this Greco-Roman world to teach these churches about God's favor towards us, to teach the gospel. Paul is using a very common word that his audience well understood. So I began to say, wow, so grace is not this religious word, but it's a word of his culture. I'm going, you know, but Paul, would you really use your culture to teach the gospel? And when I put it that way, it's kind of like, yeah, that's exactly what he does. He's not taking this brand new word and having to explain it to the churches. He's taking a concept they already know and using that to to show how God and Jesus now are their patrons. So gratitude is one, loyalty is the other. And then I read on and I say, what word did they use for loyalty? And I see all the word was pistos. And then I go, what English word is that? And wouldn't you know it, it's the word faith. So now I'm going, man, Paul, you've really just taken this patronage system, used their terms to explain grace and faith. And I'm thinking, let's, and truthfully, within, within the New Testament, Grace is used in the Gospels maybe four times. Revelation twice. Out of the 140 instances of the word grace in the New Testament, maybe eight are outside of Acts and the Epistles. And Paul uses it more than anyone else. Romans around 28 times. If you add both Corinthian letters, over 20 times. And why is that? Well, he's writing to Romans in Rome where they understand the patronage system. He's writing to Corinth, which is a Greek city, but at that time was really a Roman colony. Romans sacked it, rebuilt it with Roman culture. So the majority of the term when we see grace, it's within a Greco-Roman church, Rome, Colossus, 
Thessalonica, Ephesus, Galatia. That was their culture. So how did we miss this? Because I have not heard this before. I've never seen grace explained in this patronage system. Well, part of it is, over the last 50, 60 years, the archaeological discoveries have allowed scholars to understand better the culture in the first century. But the other side of that is, historically, we go back to our first class, right? How did we lose our Jewish roots? And as more Gentiles became more prominent within the church, and the Jewish numbers became more the minority, we began shifting away from this culture. Um, Augustine was a major influencer in our Christian thought. What is Augustine's background? He came out of Gnosticism, Manichaeism, which oddly enough is what John in his epistles vehemently opposed. And Augustine was heavily influenced by Greek philosophy. So we have someone who's coming out of Gnosticism, heavily involved in Greek philosophy, becoming a Christian and somewhat marrying now the scriptures and this Greek philosophy. And the culture of the New Testament is, is beginning to be dropped out of how we read it. So you continue on several hundred years or thousand years and the reformers were heavily influenced by Augustine also. They were also in a what? An individualistic culture, in a legal type culture, a guilt innocence culture. So how did grace begin to be defined? Began to be defined through justification. That's a nice legal term, one we like. We like those legal terms. And that became the only lens through which grace was seen. So now we have this emphasis of grace being unmerited favor and seen in, in essence, just a one-way transaction. This is what God in his sovereign glory does for man. And it became very transactional, very one-way. And that's not wrong. That is what happened. God does give us grace. He does justify us. But that lens was very narrow. And it took away the culture with which Paul was originally writing to his readers. So when we see grace through the patronage circle, through that lens, we see that Yes, God gives us a favor, but what is the other side of that? There is an obligation on those who accept that gift to respond with grace. Grace comes and grace goes back. So that is the circle that Paul's readers understood when they see the term grace. And when they see the term Faith, they understood the loyalty of the client to the patron, that the client would give his life for the patron. That deep of loyalty, Carl? When Jesus says uh, the Great Commission, follow me, that's the concept of live by faith to follow Jesus is to be loyal. 
-hmm. not to go about believing or, uh, you know, have I, do you believe fully repent when you said that, you know, we're so worried that the, that the, the important thing, and it's my sins are taken care of, if you follow me, I'm t it is finished, and then now you follow me. Correct. And, and one thing that, that Carl just said is that, you know, for us, faith and for the reformers, for Augustine, the reformers, faith became a mental ascent. Faith means I, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Whereas for them, faith was uh, putting one's trust and loyalty into the patron. It was very active. For us, grace became this transaction from God. For them, grace meant a relationship. You could not have grace without a relationship. So when they see grace, when they saw grace, they saw that I now have a relationship with God. Am I saying this is the only way we view grace? No. We view grace through justification. That is appropriate. What I'm hoping we can do now is that we can also see as we read through the New Testament, there's another lens through which we can see grace and understand it. If I have a diamond ring, I typically don't want to look at it just from one angle. A diamond ring, a diamond is not cut to be viewed from one direction. It is cut to be viewed from different directions in different light. And that's all I'm saying for grace here is that now we have a diamond that we can look at from different viewpoints. Not just from justification, but also from this patron-client relationship to where there are obligations that the client has to the patron. We can look at it through um, the Old Testament word of Kesed, God's loving kindness, his mercy. Because Paul is a Jew, so he would have had his Jewish concepts in that also. So let's recognize that grace is, is this diamond that we can look at with a multitude. It is multifaceted. Our encouragement, 1 Peter 4. Again, let's look at this from a client perspective. Let's look at this from an honor perspective, reading it from that lens. Peter says what? If you are insulted, dishonored, for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory, again, an honor term, Spirit of glory, honor of God rests upon you. Make sure that none of you suffers for a murderer, thief, evildoer. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, don't be shamed. Glorify God. Give honor to God, even if you are shamed. Proper response of a client is what? Therefore, since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let's show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. The show gratitude is the word charis. Show grace. So recognize that we're having to translate this word. They would not have had to translate it. So when the writer of Hebrews says, we've got a kingdom, so let's show Chorus, they would have understood it in that patron-client relationship. They would have understood that that's what a client shows back to the patron is gratitude. Um, Colossians 
Therefore, since you have received Christ, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted, now built up in him, established, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. Again, think of this in the patron-client lens. Uh, this is the word Eucharisto. It's, it's the same word we get, Eucharist. Some denominations call the Lord's Supper the Eucharist, the giving of thanks. Again, coming from the word charis. Verse we're familiar with. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with, in our version, thankfulness in your hearts to God. But the word is chorus, singing with grace. So the Colossian readers would have, when they heard this passage read, they would have heard that I am to sing with chorus, sing with grace, sing with the gratitude that a client shows a patron. Now, can I understand Colossians 3 as singing with thankfulness, as singing with gratitude? Absolutely. I am thankful for what God has done. I am thankful that my sins have been removed. I'm thankful for what he has provided. But when the Colossian readers heard this, again, they would have probably heard it, not read it. They would have heard chorus and they would have said, oh, gratitude, oh, relationship." They would have immediately thought of the relationship they have with Jesus and with God. It was a relationship term. That's the part that we kind of miss out on. Because for us, thankfulness doesn't involve a relationship too much. Carl, very quickly. Yes. Exactly. And again, 17 doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. Uh, again, the attitude of, of gratefulness. First Peter, again, Seneca said what? If, if, you, if you were to get a gift, you should be telling others about that gift. If you can't tell others about your gift, you should not take the gift to begin with because a duty of a client is to let others know what gift you've been given. First Peter says this, if you are chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you. Let others know about the gift you've been given. The response of the client is gratitude, which is grace, honor, loyalty, which is faith. Faith for us, if we say define faith, we always go. Where? Hebrews 11. Faith is now the certainty of things hoped for, the proof of things not seen. It's good head knowledge of faith. I believe this. I believe Paul defined faith when he wrote to Timothy. Again, faith is what? Loyalty. What, is, what does he say to Timothy? For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am what? Not ashamed. There's our shame language coming in. For I know whom I have believed, I am convinced that he is able to protect that which I've entrusted to him against that day. I know Jesus is my patron. He will never let me down. I know he is the ultimate patron. Human patrons may let me down. A human patron may fall on hard times, and as a client, you know what? I'm going to bolt because I'm not going down with him, although that wasn't the ideal reality sets in. I've got to survive. 
But Paul says what? Jesus is this ultimate patron that I can put my total faith and trust in. Do we believe that? Absolutely. Now I hope we see it with deeper roots and the deeper meaning that is involved in what's going on here. So in summary, Paul framed the concept of grace in the cultural world of the New Testament. I I just don't see any way around that. That when he's writing to these Greco-Roman churches in Rome and Colossians and Thessalonica and Corinth, he is writing within a patronage or a reciprocal worldview. And there was an expectation that if a gift was given, there is a response that is an obligation to think that grace was free with no response. Paul could have never dreamed that. Now, was, could we ever earn the grace? No, the client could, again, never earn the gift, never repay the gift, but was obligated to show gratitude, loyalty, and honor. Services or good deeds are also mentioned quite a bit in, uh, in how we respond to God's grace. So we live our lives to extol the honor of God in Jesus. Maybe instead of WWJD, it's WWHG. What would honor God? One last point. A couple minutes over, sorry. but let's. Hebrews 4, 6. Let us come with boldly. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. We all know this passage. For us, boldness is what? Fearlessness daring, courageous, sometimes brazen. I'm going to come before God and let my request be made known. Because as an individual, that's what we would do. We would stand up for ourselves let our request be made known. But if we look at this from a patronage lens, what do we see? We see one, a client would never demand of the patron. He knows his place. So there would never be a boldness that's a demanding. But he would be able to ask with frankness, with an open speech. He would let his request be known straightforward without any concealment. Uh, Now, we in the South, sometimes we like to kind of talk around things. We like to, you know, my barn burned down and kind of tough right now and You're supposed to understand that means I need lumber. But I'm not going to say I need lumber because I'm just kind of want to talk around it. But here the Hebrew writer says, no. With God, you be open, you be frank. It's It's with an attitude of humility, but God is expecting open speech, frank speech, letting our requests be made known. It's a friendship term. And we don't get that. We miss that part. That for them, when they heard the word boldness, they would have understood that a client has a, has a trust in his patron. And it's a term of friendship. And that, I hope, is something that can add to us in how we understand this passage and, and see it as as just a little deeper maybe than we've seen it before, that that's the relationship God wants. So I appreciate...
Appreciate you hanging with us a few extra minutes. Phil gets all the hard questions next week since I didn't leave you time to ask any, so write them up, and he'll pass them on to the next week when I hopefully get back. So thank you, everybody. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.